Thanks, Joe. Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you this morning. Um, when I came into the, the meeting first up and met uh, Vicky Salkin in the, in the foyer, and Vicky has a commissioning that will be after this, uh, this message, um, looking at the topic of the day, and we were talking the, the, the theme of the day through and a little bit of the service, and, and Vicky thought, oh, you know, blessed are the persecuted, that we'd actually selected that as the topic for the day to, to frame up her commissioning and sending to the persecuted church. And I said, well, no, that's not quite it, Vicky. This is actually the final of our, our week on the Beatitudes, and it just so happens it is blessed are the persecuted. And, and so we both agreed that perhaps, you know, the way God brings things together, that there is kind of a bit of a convergence around this morning, around this idea of being persecuted, because the gospel really is a gospel that's set against the backdrop of persecution, the suffering of Jesus for for us. So as we come this morning to conclude this series that we began back in January with four weeks and then through through July with the final four weeks, Foundations for Life, this is around the the Beatitudes or Beatitudes, another word for the blessings of Matthew chapter five. My hope is to bring it all together today and, and to, to put the literal bow on top but hopefully for all the right reasons. Joe, your prayer that we might be stretched uh, could well be answered this morning as we look into this this story that James read a moment ago. But before we get there, this is the final beatitude of Jesus. This is Jesus putting the cream on the cake. He's already spelt out how counter to the world the kingdom of God is, a place where the poor where the poor are favoured and blessed, a place where the mercy, those who extend mercy will receive mercy, a place, a place of, of, that's so counter to the world in which he spoke these things out in. And so now he names the reward that awaits those who live out the values he defined in everything that goes before. So, and this is what he says. God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. So the God blesses, is, you'll remember Makarios, you are already blessed and will continue to be. So there's this past reality. So you're already blessed when you're persecuted. Wow, that's, uh, that's provocative, isn't it? God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. Be happy about it. Be very glad for a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. So there it is, the final word on the kingdom. And Jesus clearly says, if you follow me, If you do right, you're going to get it all. The kingdom and some extras for good measure. The the Collins Dictionary defines persecution as the cruel and unfair treatment of a person or a group, especially because of their religious or political beliefs or their race. And there are a number of other words around this word because persecution, we, we bandy it around a whole bunch of places, but I'm not sure that we've really got a handle on what it's about. The, these are the words like victimization, abuse, torture, torment. Uh, you know, clearly this thing, persecution, it's not a nice thing. 
And yet for early Christians, persecution was their daily experience of life. Proclaiming another kingdom. Proclaiming another king, a merciful king. Proclaiming salvation through Jesus rather than temple and the practice of law-driven religion. Demonstrating a, a, a living freedom from despotic and oppressive rule. These are the sorts of things in Jesus' day that could get you killed. But it's not just in Jesus' day, as we'll hear when Vicky comes and shares with us a little later. I'm certain sure that persecution, it's not something to revel in, but that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says that in persecution, we're to be happy. In fact, we're to be very glad. How is that possible? How is that possible? Now, a couple of weeks ago, I I put out a challenge uh, to us, asking that we begin to bring all of Jesus' teachings of these Beatitudes, about that which is already blessed, to inform his stories and his parables and his other teachings. And uh, I don't think it would be particularly fair of me to put out that challenge. Um, if I'm not prepared to actually do it myself. So this morning, I'm actually going to attempt to model an approach to a teaching that Jesus brought to show the richness and understanding that emerges as we reflect on this passage that James read a moment ago. In actual fact, it's the middle of three stories, a, a trilogy of stories that are the last that Matthew records prior to Jesus Judge his arrest, his judgment, his beating, his crucifixion and his death. And so it, it, the point that Jesus makes with these three stories as one body of teaching, it's the temple discourse. This is the last stuff Matthew's recorded. This, whatever it was about this, it tipped the elite over to act on their murderous plan. For those of you that may have your Bible, you might just like to scan over to, or for taking notes, Matthew 26, verses 3 and 4. You'll actually see that the chief priests and all of that mob, they get together and they say, this is it, effectively, this is it. We can no longer bear this man's words. So whatever it was that was in those three stories as one block, it actually was not good news to them. Whatever they understood, it clearly didn't reinforce their values, their view of the world, or their way of life. And the way I've come to understand this is that Matthew 25 is one block of teaching in three parts. The first part opens with the what. What's this all about? It's about the kingdom of God. It's the story of the wise and foolish virgins. And the core message of that story is that to, to, to understand the kingdom of God, we have to be wise and discerning. To receive it, to participate in it, to, to prepare to receive the kingdom of God, we have to be wise and discerning. The middle parable that we heard a moment ago, the middle story, is the so what. Now, the NLT wraps it up to say, you know, again, the kingdom is like. 
as a translation of the Greek word hospa. And we can be forgiven that Jesus is saying, again, this is how the kingdom is and continue on our merry way. That caused me quite some difficulty that I'll explain shortly. But So the middle story is the so what around which these three stories pivot. And then you've got the now what, which is the, the story of the sheep and the goats from Matthew 31 to the end of the chapter. But it's this middle story that I've drawn out. Because usually we hear these three parables preached as a separate bit. You get this bit, the wise and foolish virgins, and then you've got this bit, the parable of the talents, and then this bit, the sheep and the goats. But I see it as, and I've come to see it as a continuing story with a what, so what, now what. And in the middle story caused, and caused me a whole lot of trouble when I first started out in ministry at Woodridge. Now, Woodridge, um, Woodridge in, in Brisbane is a little bit like Mount Druitt is to Sydney. It's uh, uh, underclass, very poor people living in that community. And that's where I, that's where I learned that, that my very comfortable middle-class Bible college training and way of looking at the Bible was completely inadequate. It's where I learned that being poor, it means you can't even protect the little that you've got, let alone build increase. I'm pastoring a church where a church building was nicked, and that's another story. I'm probably the only pastor in Australia that's ever had a church building nicked, but it literally was because the nature of being poor is you cannot protect even the little that you've got. And the traditional approach to this middle story caused me incredible consternation. There was too much about it that just didn't make sense. The idea that God rewards performance, that you've got to perform and come up to a a line, but if you don't perform, you get smashed and thrown out. That, That, for me, wasn't consistent with the way I understood the character and nature of God. And I didn't preach this story for nine years. I worked on this story for nine years. So I'm going to try and give you in half an hour what took me nine years to work on. But I guess as I worked on it and researched it and sat uncomfortably with it, it was the work of scholars, uh, Ched Myers and William Herzog II. They pointed out a simple thing that that adjoining adverb hospa, which means, or translated earlier as, again, it is like, and we think it's about the kingdom, it actually can be translated like this. You need to know what this is here, the what, so you can get your head around this bit, the so what. Changed everything. This understanding of one little word unlocked the parable. In fact, it actually unlocked the trilogy for me. And it shapes a whole lot about how I now approach the scripture. Not just looking to see what scripture says, but seeking to answer the question, what does this say about God? And more importantly, how does this invite me to understand God? So... When I then began to read through the eyes of the Beatitudes, 
a very different understanding began to emerge. So Jesus now starts to tell the so what story, the story of the talents. And not being a 21st century, not being a 1st century Jew, I'm sorry, I actually missed the point originally and I didn't understand it at all. But eventually I understood that if I'm going to get to the bottom of the story, I had to step back and approach it through the lens of the whole of the scriptures. And so Leviticus chapter 6 in verses 2 to 5, has got to be held in the context of this story because this passage, it it represents the culture that the story is bedded in. And this is what Leviticus 6 has to say. If anyone sins and is unfaithful to the Lord by deceiving a neighbour about something entrusted to them or left in their care or about something stolen, or if they cheat their neighbour or if they find lost property and lie about it, if they swear falsely about any such sin that people may commit, when they sin in any of these ways and realise their guilt, they must return what they have stolen or taken by extortion or what was entrusted to them or the lost property they found or whatever it was they swore falsely about. They must make restitution in full and add a fifth of the value to it and give it all to the owner on the day they present their guilt offering. So that's the culture of the Hebrews, of the Jews. The Bible says to caretakers not to charge a person for looking after their goods. doesn't say to caretakers that we are to make money, that they are to make money of someone else's money left in their care and keeping. And that was an eye-opener for me. That actually began to open this story up. And we've got to hold that truth in the tension of this story. And so then Jesus, in, in saying, again in this like, he was actually saying, you know something, we need to know about the wise and foolish virgins, about being wise and discerning, because... This is how our world functions. Jesus' story is one where the master of a great household heads off overseas and leaves his affairs in the hands of his retainers, each according to their dunamis, which was about their status or their power, their position, their capacity. The master in the story is often considered as representative of God. The faithful are considered those who make profit. The villain, the one who buries his gold. But back in the day, for the people who were Jesus' audience, it was a familiar story to them. And in their lived experience, the master of the greatest household in Israel was not God. It was actually King Herod. And that changes everything. Because Herod was always off, carrying favour with Caesar the Roman aristocracy, and leaving his close but crooked vassals to manage his affairs. I told you you'd be stretched. This is challenging over and against the way we've classically heard this unpacked for us. Herod's vassals had a a, a ruthless reputation in the carrying out of their tasks. They ripped people off left, right and centre. And let's face it, 100% return on investment is quite out there, isn't it? isn't it? So the master allocates talents 
of gold or silver in the NLT version to be looked after. Now, a talent of precious metal was a weight. It was a weight equivalent to 15 years income. So to one of the servants, he left five talents. So we're talking about 75 years of income and you're never going to get that back if it's lost. Not ever. To the other, to the second, he left two talents. And two talents is 30 years of income, a lifetime of earning. Again, it's not recoverable if it's lost. But to the third servant, he left one talent. 15 years of income, you can get that back if you lose it. But what this is representative of is is the, the economic strata of Israel. The elite and the wealthy were the 2% at the top of the tree, which are your your five and your two-talent people. The 98% of the population were farmers and artisans and workers and serfs at the bottom of the tree. And the separation is quite obvious when you see it like that. So the five-talent, the two-talent people, they double their money. These two are representative of the ruling class elite who set their systems up for protecting the rich and powerful while they exploit the rest. I mean, let's not forget that, you know, trickle-down economics is a nonsense, you know, that money trickles from the rich to the poor. It doesn't go that way. It always trickles up, always goes up. The third servant is usually branded with a lack of entrepreneurial expertise and laziness, the one who digs a hole and buries the talent. But this is another cultural key for the discerning exegete. It's a little bit like planting. When you dig a hole and bury something, it's a farming metaphor representative of the group that he is a part of in Jesus' story. So this caretaker, he, he, he's a person who works the land. And these, this group, they occupy in a totally different economy to the elite. It's the economy of limited good. You know, there's only so much of the pie to go around. Only so much to go around. It's not an ever-increasing, expanding pie. They know that all you need to grow something is a seed, a bit of sunshine and some water. They function from the base of grace. This is the true economy of God where everything is a gift. And by burying the talent... By burying the gold, he takes it out of circulation. It can't be used to exploit the vulnerable. He was the only one in the story who refused to participate in the rip-off world according to its rules and conform to its standard. He is the only one in the story who did what Leviticus chapter 6 requires. Someone leaves something in your care and keeping... When they come to get it, you give it back to them in full measure. You don't charge them. It's a completely different way of seeing this passage. And then Jesus brings the story to his conclusion. The master comes home, the reckoning begins. The caretakers return what had been entrusted to them. And the master applauds those who invested for return. Both the caretakers are rewarded, reckoned to be good and worthy because of their ability to exploit others. 100% Return on investment. That's outrageous. It was probably about 120, actually, and they creamed off 20% for themselves and gave the rest. 
But in actual fact, it's the behaviour of these servants that was quite unconscionable. It trenched poverty and servitude in the system for all, including themselves. But what about the third servant? Well, remember the Bible mandates responsibility to those who care for goods on behalf of another to return it in full measure. The caretaker is not required to invest to return for profit. That that idea is brought to the text from outside. Investment for capital growth is a concept foreign to the Bible. So does that mean that investment is wrong? No, no, I'm not saying that. Of course not, so long as the investments are ethical. All I'm saying is that investment return, it's not the economic view or practice advocated for by the Bible. So this story cannot be read supportive of that sort of narrative. This is a so what story. It's a so what story about the way the world works. And I think we've, we've all got personal loans, we've all got mortgages, we've, we're not paying 100% return on investment, but we're all carrying some level of debt or another. This, so this is a so what story of the way the world works with the exposure of the injustices of that world by a person who refuses to participate in the corrupt system. This story is about the fate that awaits, the fate that awaits the whistleblower. The third servant exposes those who participate in and protect exploitive systems by taking the talent of gold out of circulation. It could not then be used for a purpose counter to the purpose of the kingdom of God. And it makes total sense of God's upside-down kingdom against the backdrop of Good Friday's death tree. And this, for me, is where we gain deep insight into what persecution is and what it isn't. You see, the Messiah was considered worthless. He was crucified because he threatened the systems of his world by refusing to participate in corrupt, exploitive and religiously tilted politics. So that's the so what story, which then breaks open to the now what story. What follows this parable of the talents? Well, Jesus tells the story of the sheep and the goats. And it's actually a story about meeting Jesus in outer darkness. Jesus said, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you cared. I was in prison and you visited. And all of those I was statements are conditions that the elite considered to be a curse and an evidence of being in outer darkness where there's a weeping and a gnashing of teeth. And Jesus is saying, when you did this to these in outer darkness, you did to me. In other words, I am in that outer darkness. Jesus is saying, when I was in outer darkness, you came. And when you follow my example and the world excludes you and pushes you out like it did me, I will come to you. 
You see, this reading, it completes the answer to why we can find joy in persecution. I'm so grateful for Middle East Concern, Vicky, as an expression of God's comfort to those who are excluded and in outer darkness, that God would raise up a group of people to remove the alienation and to actually journey with and through that brokenness to take away the isolation. There's nothing worse than suffering hardship alone. It's the old saying, a burden shared is a burden halved. You see, this reading helps us understand why we can welcome and be very happy about persecution because the persecuted get it all. Jesus comes. He comes to us in outer darkness and the kingdom is the reward. You know, I've only got one persecution story from my own journey and it takes me back a while when I was working for Sky Fleet at Kedron, uh, helping people um, purchase new Toyotas, make the distinction between new and used, okay? Um, I'd been off work for six weeks with a knee reconstruction and, um, and the bills had, had piled up. And when I went back to work, it was like this constant trail of people were just walking to my desk and signing orders for new Toyotas. I'd knocked over about 30, 34 new cars in 20, 22 days. It was sort of wow stuff. And all of the other sales staff, it was a big dealership, all the other sales staff are absolutely gobsmacked. And they're saying, why? Why? And I said, well, I, I, I've been off work for six weeks. I've had no commission. I've had no wage. And so, therefore, this is how I earn my money. God is simply looking after us so that I can pay my bills. And it was just outrageous. Good grocers, the whole banana. And people started to ask, why? And I said, well, this is just God looking after us. And so it began to, to generate some really rich conversations. And I was very aware that I'm on my boss's time, so I'm not going to gas bag on my boss's time. I'm actually going to do my work, but in breaks and at other times. And, and the guys would start talking in the smoker room and before and after work, and they'd say, oh, Rich, you know, we're, we're doing this on the weekend, going out to the pub, going out to the club, going to do this, going to do that, going to do the other. What are you going to do? I said, I'm going to get with my mates on Sunday morning and we're going to sing and we're going to dance and we're going to clap and we're going to shout and we're going to have just the absolute best time. They'd say, oh, yeah, where, where are you going to do that? We'll come with you. I said, oh, the local Baptist church. But we actually got around and people were coming into the dealership and asking for the Christian car salesman. (laughs) Go figure. It was amazing. And anyway, this particular day, um, the general manager came up to me. Oh, you know, we'd started a Bible study and a prayer group and things were really going on. And the general manager came up and said, "Uh, need to have a talk to you. I said, yeah, what's up? And he said, "Uh, this God talk, it's got to finish. I said, hang on, <laughs> it's okay for these other guys to talk about their pubs and their clubs and everything else, but, you know, he said, yeah, it's got to finish. I said, I, I'm, I'm not gas-bagging on the boss's time. I'm doing my work. I'm, I'm helping people buy cars. And Yeah, yeah, that's fine. I'm not chipping your work, Reese, but the God talk's got to stop. And I said to him, I said, well, that's, that, that's actually really problematic to me. I said, if somebody asks me a question about about 
life and faith and spirituality. I have a responsibility to, to talk about that with other people. You know, always be prepared to give an answer to those who ask. That's, so I, I promise you I, I, won't, I won't initiate a conversation as I haven't. And he said, no, 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 the God talk stops. And I said, look, you, you know, I don't have too many options here. I said, can I go home and talk to my wife and let you know my decision tomorrow? And he said, yeah, that, that, would, be, that would be fine. So the next morning I came to work and I sold two more cars in the morning. He came to me at lunchtime and he said, well, Reese, he said, um, what have you decided? And I, I repeated my offer. I said, I will not initiate a conversation. But if someone asks me a question, surely I can give a response to a question. He said, no, that's totally out of the question. He said, I'm a Roman Catholic. He said, church is for Sundays. This is for work. And I said, well, mate, my boss is bigger than your boss. You better make up my pay. And uh, I sold another car in the afternoon. And I'm going to trust Jesus. I'm going to trust Jesus. I got picked up by Motorama Toyota within a week. They were fantastic with me. This continued on. God just continued. I, I just continued to help people purchase new cars. And it was coming up to the end. And you might remember the morning I bought the Toyota flag. That was from the Toyota dealership that closed down the day I finished to go to Bible college. And I've got the Toyota flag to prove it. I can't go back. I'm spoiled for the ordinary. Sadly. (laughs) But there it is. But the point is that in those, those final weeks and months... Motorama Toyota were fantastic for me. I'd sold that many cars and and I was was going into Bible college so I wasn't going to be earning any more money. They actually strung out my payments to minimise the tax. I was still collecting commission six months after I finished. And I'm not saying that, that God is a God of gold and silver. This was about God simply meeting us in our need But God meets people in persecution in amazing ways, doesn't he, Vicky? In amazing ways. Not just gold and silver. He met us in that way. He met me with meaningful employment and then took me into theological college for 30 years I've been in ministry. And he continues to be faithful. And I guess I want to say to us, if you're going through a hard time, I know who it is you're about to meet because he meets us in the hard spaces. We get the flack, but we join Jesus in taking the flack, and he joins us. His presence is real. His presence is empowering. And we, indeed, are blessed. Let's pray. As Father, as we consider this idea of exploitation, as we consider this idea of persecution, as we find ourselves in a, in a day, in a world that um, the world you were in belittled you, arrested you, judged you, beat you, crucified you, murdered you. We understand in our world there are many of our sisters and brothers around the world who are experiencing similar difficulties which make what we experience in Australia seem, by comparison, minuscule. But yet, there are persecutions that do happen around us. Help us to trust you.
Help us to look to you, to be found in you, to be faithful to you, that we would have a confidence that when the time comes where we find ourselves in outer darkness, that you indeed are present with us, blessing and empowering. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.